The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 19th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Good to see you guys this morning. Just a reminder as we get going, uh, this Wednesday uh, is our Ash Wednesday service. And that marks the start of what's known as the season of Lent. Um, a season and kind of the architecture of time in the life of the church that is really marked by a time of reflection, examination, confession and, and preparation for celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And, and I'll just kind of say this as one more kind of preamble for the beginning of the season of Lent. I know for, for many people, uh, the tradition of church maybe you grew up in or were familiar with, maybe you came from an Orthodox background, maybe a Catholic background, uh, that's been your only exposure to the, the season of Lent. And you're wondering what in the world is a, a Reformed Protestant church doing talking about the season of Lent. Um, I'll just remind you briefly in this, uh, the actual formalization of Lent as a, a season in the life of the church calendar uh, was brought to us by the same pastors and theologians who gave us the Nicene Creed. The pastors and theologians who formulated this doctrine that helped set forth for us our clearest understanding of what one must know and hold fast to in order to be saved in orthodoxy also gave us this time in the, the season in the life of the church. And, and ever since, churches across the spectrum have honored the season of Lent in some more formal ways and some way less formal ways, kind of like us. For, for us, we acknowledge the season as an intentional time to spend in examination and reflection and consideration of our own hearts, of our own affections in preparation for Easter. And just like in reality, on this side of the cross, every Sunday is like a little Easter Sunday because we celebrate the glories of the resurrection of Jesus, yet we set aside a particular time in the Easter season to celebrate that. Every day is really a time of reflection, examination, and repentance in light of Jesus' resurrection reality, but we set aside a particular time to intensely and purposefully consider the realities of our heart examine the affections of our heart. And, and I will tell you that I don't think it's just a healthy practice and habit. After the last few years, I've been increasingly convinced that it's absolutely necessary for us. And so last week and this week, we were kind of laying the, the parallel tracks on which we're going to journey together in the season of Lent. And so if you weren't with us last week and you didn't have a chance to, to hear the, the message from last week, I would encourage you, go back and listen to it because it's going to help give shape to, to why we're going to spend these next several weeks leading up to Easter uh, taking time to really consider the reality of what our heart prefers and desires. And then this morning, we'll lay the parallel track that will go along with it as we get ready for the season of Lent to start. And I'll, I will kind of begin laying the track this way before we jump into the scriptures. I'll give you a little bit of, of background. Um, some of you may be aware, maybe you saw it online, um, maybe you've been around long enough to know it, but just a few weeks ago, uh, the weekend of, of January 22nd, we actually celebrated, or didn't really celebrate, that's the thing, uh, the 15th anniversary of the church. 
Yeah. Um, yes, that's, that's worth, you know. Um, I bring it up because I didn't say anything a few weeks ago. Uh, and, and for the last few weeks, I've been a little bothered as to why I didn't. I mean, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like a decision. The week came, the week went, and we went on. And, and I've been a little bothered. And, and it really kind of snowballed into something that's kind of been percolating for a while. Uh, it, when the church turned 10, 10 or 11 in that range, um, I began to get, I honestly believe from God's kindness, a burden and an angst in a sense of thinking about what kind of people were we going to be at 15 and 20 years? 10 had come, and that was unreal. Like, I, like to think about the church being where it was at 10 years, if you knew what I really thought and what I really felt during year one, 10 was a miracle. And to see all that God was doing at the time uh, when we turned 10 and, and just the stories of, of his grace that were happening, and I just began to think, well, to get to 15 and 20 and the kind of people who you want us to be, I, what do we need to prepare for? How do we need to prepare for that? What needs to, to kind of happen? And it was a very heavy angst. And so we began talking to pastors who were further along the way in this journey than we were and, and began asking them questions. And, and then for those of you that are familiar with the seeing Jesus together rhythm that we have, Ted Sin, who, who kind of created that, he's a good friend of ours. He actually began coming in kind of like a, a helpful consultant sitting down with the elders and staff, just trying to get a picture, uh, help us to see more clearly uh, the reality of, of who we are as Redemption Hill at the time. And, and then think about, you know, who God was calling us to be as his people for the next five, 10 years and, and what kind of things we needed to adjust and, and kind of architect along the way. And so after a good 18 months or so of this kind of just prayer and, and, and exploration and we had a few things that we felt like we needed to adjust in kind of the, kind of the architecture of our life as a church. And, and in the beginning of 2020, in January of 2020, we implemented some of those changes. And they were a while coming. And a lot of things went into implementing those changes. People's responsibilities shifted, things shifted, direction shifted, all kinds of stuff. And Nola, I promise you, less than 70 days later, it all stopped. It, it all was quite literally in that moment for nothing. And it was very, the word that I, I, I've been using at home and, and my wife and I've been using, the word has been very disorienting for me because it was a, a process, a pretty good while coming and then all of a sudden it's done. But you can't really think about it at the time because you had to keep going. And there was a, a persevering through the moment at the time that just had to happen. All of a sudden, you had to just, what do we do to keep going? And the time to actually think about all the change and what it really meant, and it, it was, I never really had time set apart to, to deal with that in my own heart and my own mind. And in the last several months, that I, I've kind of tried to make that time because I still felt a lot of probably internal confusion and disorientation, um, how everything just went away, and how it felt like we were being very uh, intentional and deliberate in trying to understand what God was wanting us to do, and then it was gone. And it wasn't until very, very recently, and I say very, very recently, I'm talking matters of, of days, really, you can count them with your fingers, that I was thinking about this, and I, again, felt very clearly from the Lord 
a sense of clarity begin to shift in my heart and my mind in a moment. And I kept hearing a word, and the word was superficial. Superficial. And I just kept hearing it in my head. Like, what, what do you mean? And I felt this kind of clarity washing in my heart when as I was thinking about all this stuff that had been so disorienting and confusing. And I kept hearing superficial, surface. All of a sudden, I began to see the last three years very differently. And I'm talking a matter of days. I began to see the last few years very differently. All of a sudden, I began to see them in ways that I would talk about them, but I don't know if I was really honest about feeling them. I began to see them very clearly as a gift of his kindness and grace. And the changes that we were making, the directions we were going, the things we were doing while good, in the end, they were just superficial. They were just surface level adjustments. What he's wanting from his people is much more foundational and it, it drills much deeper than some of the changes and the directions that we were even thinking about. Deeper than organizational and architectural adjustments and changes for the future, he was after something much deeper. He's after the affections of our heart. And as much as the last few years were disorienting in some decisions, they've also been absolutely intensifying in, in the march of, of secularism, not just outside the church, but inside the church. And I began to sense very clearly, just again, days, a matter of days ago, that the last few years and, and the erasing of, of many of those things that we were doing was really a kindness of God. Because they weren't going to prepare our hearts they weren't going to make us steadfast. What he wanted was much deeper. And we were simply just scratching at the surface. The question I honestly think he's holding out for us that we'll continue to explore through Lent is, do we want to go where Jesus is going? Do we want to be with him or not? It's a matter of, of what we really want. And so to help us get ready to explore that even in more specific ways in the next several weeks, I want us to spend some time in Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9, if you've got your Bibles, open up there. Now we're going to settle in in our time in the middle of the chapter, so I want to kind of catch you up to what's been happening in Luke 9 up to this point. And in the first six verses, you can just kind of look down at your Bibles and you see it. It won't come up here. But just the first six verses, Jesus has sent his 12 disciples out with his authority to go and preach the good news of God's kingdom having arrived and him being the promised Messiah and with his authority to heal. And as you read, Luke tells us they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And so in verses 7 through 9, we've come to discover that so much was happening through the ministry of Jesus' disciples with his delegated authority as they're going and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the power of God is working through not only their preaching, but through them as people are being healed everywhere they go. That word even gets back to Herod. It doesn't even travel just to the villages. It gets all the way back to Herod, right? And you read in those verses that Herod was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. The John there is John the Baptist, who Herod had beheaded. 
And so he's hearing about all these things happening, the, the fervor of the people, the healing that's happening through the disciples of Jesus. But Herod, Herod thinks, what, is John back? I mean, he was preaching this kind of message. I know I killed him. Is he back? He's hearing all that's going on. It's causing a stir throughout the entire empire. And then in verses 17, 10 through 17, again, if you think about it a bit like a human, the disciples are coming back to Jesus. You've got to imagine they're so eager to tell them what's been going on. Tell them how people have been responding. Tell them the things they've seen God do as they've preached the gospel. The freedom they've seen in people's lives and in people's bodies. You've got to think they're so excited to come back to Jesus and just pour it all out, right? But they're back with Jesus trying to get together with him. And what happens? Man, people want to be with Jesus too. Because they've been hearing what's going on. They've been seeing what's going on. So the crowd begins to gather again. And now we've got a story that you're probably familiar with if you've been in the church at, at some point in your life. Or, or, you know, the story even has just cultural implications and phrases we say. The crowd gets so big, they start to get concerned. So Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you take care of them. You guys take care of them. You guys feed them. And Luke tells us at this point that the crowd had numbered 5,000. That's just like a, a lookout of a crowd. That's not a head count. That's a lookout and go, it's about 5,000 people. And that 5,000 in, in those days when they would count like that, they're talking about heads of households. So you've got to add to it the, the heads of households who may have brought their spouses and their kids with them, some without them, but some with them. So the number was more than 5,000 technically, but you're looking out going, that's 5,000. And Luke gives us this fascinating little detail. I had not really paid much of attention to it in the context of the whole thing that Jesus is saying and where we're going, but Jesus tells his disciples to organize the crowd in groups of 50. So thinking about the heads of household, putting them in groups of 50, along with the heads of household come the people that are in their families, right? So the groups are more than 50. And in that day, 80 to 100 was the number of a Roman centuria. A modern-day platoon in our army. A centurion that would have been led with a delegated authority by a centurion. Jesus has them organize the people across the hillside in these groups and numbers. And then miraculously, Jesus does what Jesus does and he feeds them. He cares for them and they're well-fed, right? And so as you keep reading in that moment, right... Jesus has been preaching the good news of God's kingdom reign and rule through his people, demonstrating his authority over sickness, over nature, over death. He's delegated this authority to his 12 who have gone out and preached in his name and seen the same kind of power, right? Now he's got his, his crowd organized into these groups and they're well-fed and cared for and energized. In verses 18 and 20, Jesus asks his disciples who, who the crowd says he is. Then he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter, being Peter, steps in to answer for everybody, and he says, you are the Christ of God. I mean, obviously, you're the promised one. You're the Messiah. You've been proclaiming the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I've seen the miracles. I've seen the power. I've tasted it as you've sent me out to proclaim the same thing and to do the same thing. You're the Christ. Look out. There are your people organized, ready 
You know what that means. The king is here and the kingdom's here. It's time for Rome to get out. All the opposition, all the suffering, all the humiliation that we've suffered at the hands of the empire, it's time for them to go. It's our turn. The king is here and the kingdom is here. Your groups are arrayed and ready for battle. Give us the authority. We'll lead them. Let's go. The power, the honor, the prestige, it's ours now. So in verses 21 and 22, Jesus looks at him and he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew and Mark, they give us a little more of an eavesdrop into the conversation. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. It it means there's a lot of overlap between their gospel accounts because they were using sources with one another. And they're telling this story and history of the life of Jesus, the Messiah. And so there's a lot of similarity in the stories. And Matthew and Mark give us a little more detail. As Jesus said this to his disciples, Mark reminds us in Mark 8. That Jesus said this very plainly to his disciples, what must happen. And he wasn't speaking in parables. He wasn't speaking in riddles. He was being very clear. And Mark tells us that at that moment, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. You're wrong, Jesus. I strongly disapprove of what you're saying right now. I strongly disapprove of your plan. Listen, Jesus, maybe you haven't realized it doesn't actually have to be that way. Like, we've seen the power. You've delegated it to us. Look out. Your people are here. It doesn't have to be that way. But turning and and seeing his disciples, Mark tells us that Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you're not seeing this the way that I see it. Peter, you're not seeing it the way your father sees it. You know who else doesn't like what I just said? The certainty of it? Satan. And you sound a lot like him right now. You're not seeing this correctly, Peter. And Jesus rebuked him. This is the only way it can happen, Peter. This is the way that I am going. Later, he'll tell them more clearly, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's been declaring that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. Believe this good news. This has to happen this way. And at that point, with all of their disillusionment, like, wait a minute. They're here. The people are here. The power's here. The king is here. The kingdom's here. Jesus is going to help them and And God's kindness and providence now help us here better understand this invitation that he's giving. 
and what it really means. Verse 23 of Luke 9 tells us that Jesus said this to everybody. He didn't just say it to Peter. Now he's talking to all of his disciples. Because the reality of it was that the things that were going on in Peter's heart and the desires of Peter's heart, they were in everybody's heart. They're in our heart. Peter is the only one willing to actually blurt it out. And so Jesus says to everyone, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would trust me, if anyone would believe me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, Mark will tell us, Jesus adds this, in this adulterous and sinful generation, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see, this is the invitation of Jesus. This is Jesus helping to fill out what it means to actually believe in him. It's the invitation of Jesus to live a life not on the surface, not scratching around at the surface of his kingdom, but in the deep wells of his joy. As Lewis would say, this is Jesus' invitation to you and I who are far too sufficiently pleased building mud pies in the slums when a holiday at the sea is being held out for us to enjoy. This is Jesus' invitation to life. And I'm afraid that we're far too easily, as Lewis said, satisfied. Like muddy little kids, happy to play in the mud. And this invitation of Jesus, it, it involves a couple of things. It involves someone to follow, and it involves something to do. Someone to follow and something to do, both are, are very important. We'll start with, with someone to follow, because we'll see as we listen to Jesus, ultimately it's going to come down to a value proposition in our heart when we weigh the reality of who it is we're called to follow and what it is we're called to do. Follow me, Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I think this is needed to be said in a way differently now than maybe it needed to be clarified then because of the reality that Jesus was there telling them this then. But as you read this, you've got to understand this invitation is an invitation to a real person. Follow me. Come after me. Friends, Jesus is not a list that you ascend to or agree with. Jesus is not a set of, of positive affirmations that you tell yourself to feel okay. Of all the ways we've shorthanded Jesus in the church, these are the things that we've done. We've made Jesus a, a mental list of information and truths that we have to ascend to. 
positive things about him that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel okay. That's not who Jesus is. He is a real person, which means following him can never be reduced to checking off a list of religious boxes and activities. Because he's a real person, it means the object of our faith, the object of our desire is a person. Logically, that means that what's most important is not necessarily what we think, not necessarily what we know, not necessarily the boxes that we check off when we do, it's what we love. Or more importantly, who we love. It's the orientation of our heart. To follow him is to follow and be with a real person in the direction that he is going and the way that he is going. We've talked about this in the past, to be his disciple. This was the world of the apprenticeship of his day, that to be his disciple was to reorient the entirety of your life that you could be with him. And in being with him 24-7, you were taking on the reality of his way, with him, knowing him, becoming increasingly like him so that you would begin to live and reflect in such a manner the priorities and the ways and the, the likeness and the character of him. The object of our hope and faith is a person. And because he's a person and not a list of truths, not a list of activities, but because he is a person, it means there's never an end to what you and I get to learn and know about him. Like I've been married 20 years. I know some of you have been married longer than that. Praise God and celebrate that. I've been married 20 years and I know this much of what little I know about marriage. Every single day I realize I have not even begun to scratch the depths of knowing the reality of who my wife is. No, I can choose to think I know her. I've got her in a box. I can describe her. I can ascribe a list of truths about her. But the reality of it is, every day that God gives me to wake up right next to her is another day to get to know something new about her. Because she's a person. And because he is a person, it means there's always something more to know about him as we're with him. Coming after him and following him way deeper than just acknowledging Jesus. That's superficial. He's not after acknowledgement. He's not after mental assent. He's after being known. And so the, the question underneath the surface as he holds this invitation out at this particular moment with his disciples and, and even for us is, do you want to come and be with me? Do you want to do your life in relationship with me? Are you really willing to fundamentally reorient the way you see and live this life according to my way? Am I? Am I what you really want? That's the foundational question. Do you really want Jesus? 
Or have you become okay with a form of religion that might take his name and increasingly seem to you enviable of the people around you, honorable in comparison to the world in which you live? But like we saw last week, for those that were here or will go back and listen, a form of religion that might look good, but is all the sudden equated that looking good with actually being spiritually healthy while Jesus is on the outside looking in. What is it you actually want? Jesus is inviting us to a whole new way of living. Not just a whole new thing to know, but a whole new way to live. And make no mistake, his kingdom that he is inviting us into, his kingdom living, cannot coincide with your kingdom building. They do not go hand in hand, no matter how hard we try. This invitation requires someone to follow, but it also requires a response. There's something we have to do. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, we'll start with the, the phrase that seems most familiar. And I'll, and I'll help you to see it. It sounds like there's a few things we have to do, but hopefully you'll see as we explain it, it they all kind of go together. Again, if you've grown up in the church, the idea of taking up your cross is probably a statement you've heard said time and time again. You, you may have even said it yourself in different ways. But first thing we have to recognize about what Jesus is saying is that grammatically... The way that it's actually been said, it is an ongoing command. Grammatically, it's not a suggestion. Grammatically, it's a command. And it's not a one-time command, which is why Luke clarifies for us here that it's a daily reality. But what I want you to see more important than that, I think, for us today is that you've got to realize that no one who heard Jesus then had to ask him what it meant. When he said that they had to take up their cross, everyone listening to Jesus knew exactly what that entailed and what he was referring to. Right? As we would know in Jesus' story, when it was time for him to give himself up as a sacrifice for us on the cross, they placed that cross beam across his shoulders and he had to walk to the place of his execution. That was commonly how crucifixion was done. Man or woman, young or old. When the time of your crucifixion and execution came, that cross beam was placed across your back and you had to walk from one place to another, the other being the place of your crucifixion, and you did it in front of everybody. Everybody watching knew you had done something and now faced the opposition of the empire. You had been stripped naked, utterly humiliated, massive shame. Take that thing to the point of your execution where you would be nailed to that beam and to that post, suffering the most excruciating pain imaginable. And you would suffer physically there upwards of two days sometimes, naked, in front of all the watching eyes and all of your agony, all of your humiliation, not being able to control your body, how it was going to respond, until death came. Everyone knew what it meant when he said, take up your cross. Because everyone knew when they saw somebody walking with a beam across their shoulders that they were a dead man or a dead woman walking. 
That's what it was. See, when Jesus says, if you want to come with me, you want to follow me, being with me means being willing to be opposed and shamed and suffer and die for me. It's Jesus' way of saying that he has to become more precious to you than other people's approval of you, your own personal comfort in this world, even to the point of life itself. It's not a, an ongoing migraine you have to deal with. It's not a, a crazy in-law that's always causing you harm. It's not a difficult co-worker. Those aren't crosses you have to bear. Quit saying that. In all love, if, if you're always walking around going, well, that's my cross to bear. No, it's not. That's not what it means. That's emptying the reality of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying if you're going to come after him, you have to die to your own desire for worldly respect. Die to your own desire for an easy life. Die to your own desire for earthly wealth. Die a thousand other deaths. And that happens every single day in the 10,000 daily decisions that we make that display to a watching world what's most precious to us. What or whom we're moving after. The decisions we make put on to display what's actually deepest in our hearts. In what way we're moving. And in what or whom we're actually moving after. So, so how does one continue to treasure and prize Jesus being with him? More than the world's approval, more than the world's comfort, more than our own very life? How do we die to those things? That's the first part. Let him deny himself. Again, it's an ongoing command. Not a momentary suggestion. And of all the ways we wrestle to try to understand exactly what he's saying, I will tell you in, in contemporary times, no one has helped me better understand this and work it out in relation to my own heart than John Piper has. Because I'm not sure there's anybody alive who's thought about what this means more than he has. Thank God for him. So I'm going to try to summarize a bit of, of, of how I've come to best understand this and then work through the value proposition that Jesus gives us in it. You see, there isn't a single one of us who, by virtue of the fall, doesn't have a self that at the mere mention of being disapproved by someone else, at the mere mention of suffering dishonor or humiliation or shame, at the mere idea of having to endure something difficult or painful or suffer, even to the point of death, especially in relation to a decision to follow Jesus. There isn't a one of us who, by virtue of the fall, doesn't have this self inside that comes face to face with any of those realities in life and doesn't recoil back and go, I don't want that. I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want people to look at me different. I want to be liked. I want you to like me. I want you to approve of me. I don't want you to disapprove of me. I don't want to be humiliated. I don't 
want to hurt? I mean, I've got an opportunity to make this world as comfortable as I possibly can. I want the security that I feel like I've got right here, right now. I don't want to die. There is a self in you by virtue of the fall that even at this point says, yeah, I, I love Jesus, but not that much. Not that much. And that self has an influence on the 10,000 decisions that we make every single day. That self is being fed a buffet every single day in the world around us that feeds its desire to make decisions to pursue the approval of a watching world and the comfort of this world. That self is getting fat on the world in which we live. But at the same time, by virtue of the gospel, we are reminded that we have, in the grace of God, been born again. There has been a new birth. A new creation has come into existence. A new self exists inside. As Jesus would tell Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see what Jesus is calling you to as precious and sufficient. You can't see him in his beauty and glory and delight and be willing to put to death those things. You can't see it unless the spirit makes you new. And by virtue of the work of God's grace and God's spirit in the gospel, a new self has come into existence in your heart. This self sees God's kingdom. It sees Jesus, God's king. It tastes his mercy. It tastes his grace. And it treasures them. It becomes increasingly precious and priceless to this self. This self begins to exert influence in those 10,000 daily different decisions. And again, I'll give you his words. I love the way Piper says it. A new self, he's talking about this story in John 3 with Nicodemus, a new self has come into being that treasures Jesus more than human approval, more than honor, more than comfort, and the pleasures of the body, and more than safety and staying alive. So now, now, real self-denial is possible. Real conflict can begin. What is it to deny yourself? It's this conflict. What conflict is he talking about? He's talking about this new self born by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit going to war, denying the desires of that old self that want to do everything possible and make decisions on a daily basis that seek the approval of others, the comfort of this world, and keep ourselves safe and secure from the things that we fear. And he says, if you want to come after me, you want to follow me, You've got to engage in the conflict daily. No off days. No vacation days. The deceitful desires of the old self are being fed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Everyday stuff in us needs to be denied, put to death for the sake of greater joy. 
following Jesus, coming after Jesus. This is his invitation. If you're going to follow him, it means putting up a fight. And the battleground of the fight are the daily decisions of everyday life. How we live and what direction we're living. What or whom we're going after. And I honestly think the last few years have exposed again that at least for the Western church, let's say, and then I would say many of us and myself more than I even want to admit, we've quit fighting. There's no fight. There's no conflict. And the church holds a major responsibility in that reality because I, I think as a whole, we've failed to become skilled at identifying these things that feed the old self and identifying the, the things underneath the decisions that we're making. We fail to see and, and honor and acknowledge the reality of the conflict. And instead of seeing it for what it is and engaging in it no matter what it costs because our hearts have been captivated more superiorly by who Jesus is, we've come up with church and religious ways to baptize all those deceitful desires and add Jesus to it. We wanted to figure out ways to have our cake and eat it too as a people. And we're suffering for it. We've made Christianity superficial. We've defined it for people as simply scratching the surface of what Jesus is talking about. One writer said, he's, we've settled for such small, short-lived, inadequate, non-satisfying pleasures that our capacities for joy have shriveled up to the point that we've made joyless duty the essence of Christian virtue so as to conceal our untransformed hearts that now aren't even moved by God. My fear. So like I said, I... I think I've turned a corner of gratitude for the last few years because I think it would have been very easy for me and for us to continue in the same trajectory, deeper in the same delusion that had captivated the church we saw last week. Looking at ourselves and in all of our abundance and equating it one-to-one -one with spiritual maturation and health while missing Jesus altogether and I think the last few years as disorienting as they were have been a kindness of God in saving us from ourselves if we'll have ears to hear if anyone would come after me this is Jesus' invitation to life let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me because just listen to his advice it's just logic I don't have to explain it's just logic for, because, whoever would save his life, whoever would try to, by, by not denying the deceitful lies and cravings of the old self, by not taking up that cross and trying to put to death the desire for approval and loving comfort and loving self, whoever tries to save his life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake... Save it. Don't throw your life away on such deceitful pleasures, Jesus is saying. The old self feasts on lies. 
An older pastor wisely said, don't think that 80 years of human praise and physical pleasure are better than 8 million ages of years with fullness of joy and uninterrupted and undiminished and unparalleled pleasure at God's right hand. Don't be deceived. You see, this new self that's born by the grace of God and the work of His Spirit, it wants life as bad as the old self. They just go after it in different ways and in different places. This new self wants to live just as much as the old self. It, it just finds a superior delight in a path of life in Jesus. Because, verse 25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's a rhetorical question, right? There's no profit. There's, they know the answer. You know the answer. There's no profit. Your soul can't be bought by anything in this world. But you can get all the approval. You can orchestrate and architect a life that everybody looks at and you've managed to cultivate it in such a way that no matter who you're around and everyone you're with, they see it as enviable in your mind. Man, if they could just be like you. They all like you. No one's got to be with you. You've managed to dance around disrupting things so much that everybody's happy with you. And you've built it in such a way that you've given yourself all the comfort and security and pleasure you think you can have in this life. And Jesus says, you know it to be true because of how I made you. Not a one of those things in the end can buy your soul back. You can have it all. All the approval, all the praise, all the honoring, all of it. And you can forfeit your soul. And you can't in that day give any of it back to me in exchange. That's not how it works. I was given up as a ransom for you. Listen to him. The old self will daily try to convince you that you can just get a little more, a little more approval, a little more ease, a little more security. Man, then you can really live. Then you're living, right? Every day, that old self is fed a buffet of lies about this. And Jesus is saying, just like he said to Peter, you're sounding a lot like Satan. Those are lies. That's not life. Having me is life. For what? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Right? There is a comfort in this world that you can attain in exchange for your soul. Man, whose approval are you living for? Do you hear him? There's two audiences for your life. And you can live your life and make your decisions for one of two audiences. One audience, Mark clarifies for us, as an adulterous and sinful generation that finds greater satisfaction in the things of this world than in the Creator Himself. That's adultery. We were made for the Creator. And we find greater satisfaction and greater delight in the things of this world and not in Him. That's adultery. And Jesus is saying, you're going to live for one of two audiences. You're going to live for the approval of one or two audiences. This 
adulterous generation that's seeking everything in this world or the audience of the one who is going to come in his glory, the resurrected king. I mean, can you guess which audience the old self craves the approval of? Jesus is not mincing words. He's going right after the very things that the old self finds so satisfying, but at the same time, so deceitful. I mean, whose approval do we crave the most? In whose presence do we fear most being shamed? Friends, Jesus is pleading logically with us not to live deceived by the lie that, man, owning the whole world, approval, the praise, the comfort, the ease, that owning the whole world will do any good in the end. He's inviting us to life. But the way is his way. It's a way that requires us to deny and to daily put to death the desires that feed that old self for approval and validation and comfort and honor in this world. That's what coming after him actually entails. And we do it not just once, not just at the front after a service. We do it daily. And the 10,000 decisions that we make Decisions that will either forward us in our pursuit of other people's approval of us, come what may, and comfort in this world, or as we go after him and follow him. It's real conflict, it involves real decisions, but it's real treasure, and it leads to real life. And here's the thing is we're going to get ready to respond to God's word together. Uh, a day is going to come. I don't know when it's going to be. A day is going to come. Fullness of God's plan when this era of his plan is over. And we are all going to stand before Jesus. We're going to look him right in the eye. I haven't done that. I haven't experienced it. I don't claim to know exactly what we'll be thinking in that moment. But I have to believe that in that moment when we finally see him and we're looking at him, we won't be thinking to ourselves, man, I wish I hadn't denied that so much. I I wish I I hadn't denied myself that. Because we're finally seeing him. And in everything that we had believed, in everything we held fast to, we finally get to see with sight. And I think we'll realize that in all of it, there was no sacrifice. There was no sacrifice comparable to the joy and the eternal satisfaction that we enter into with him. Because he's worth it. Nothing comes close to being comparable. That is where he is taking us. And he said to everyone, if you want to come after me, 
Deny yourself. Take up your cross today, tomorrow, the next day. And follow me. Every week we have the privilege of responding to God's word. And this morning is no different. We're going to give you a moment to just reflect and consider what God by his spirit might be stirring in your heart, how he might be calling you to respond. But then for those who have tasted the goodness and the kindness of God's grace in Jesus and repentance and faith, you're going to be invited to come forward. And that invitation to come forward is an invitation to come to Jesus. It's an invitation to come and to take the bread of communion, remembering his body broken in your place for your sin, to dip it in that cup, remembering his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. And it's an invitation for you to come and to follow him. And you're reminded as you do that he calls us to himself by first giving us himself. It's not about you. You dip that bread in the cup. It's not about the boxes you've checked this week, the the information you've assented to today in these moments. It's Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for your forgiveness. Now come, take, eat, keep company with me. It's about me. Follow me. I'll show you life. I'll show you life. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond together. Father, I don't think any of us in here consciously want to live deceived. lies are so strong the deception is so strong you so easily settle for so much less in the fullness of life that you sent your son to purchase with his own blood Holy Spirit stir us to get into the fight stir us to engage the conflict with our own soul our own sinful cravings for approval and comfort that ultimately they'll cost us actually knowing you. Stir us to engage in the conflict for deeper joy. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.